Thank you so much for tuning in to the Attack and Release Show. My name is Sam Moses. I'm with my good friend, Matt Garber. Hello. And today we have a very special guest with us. And I am going to let Matt introduce him. Matt? So Sam and I keep trying to find ways to give back to our listeners who are so loyal to the show. As of right now when we're recording, we're just shy of 14,000 downloads in just under six months. And six days will be six months. Um, So one of the key components that we thought we were missing when, uh, like with the show, is other mastering engineers who have really been in the game for a while and just having them speak some truth and possible life into your everyday situation. Uh, With that said, we'd like to introduce uh, quote-unquote legacy section into this podcast where we do just that. Uh, This will not be a podcast about gear, sorry. Every other podcast and show talks about gear. The Attack and Release show isn't geared that way, no pun intended. (laughs) We exist to foster like a like-minded community of creators and to discuss topics that come up really in everyday life and how to like navigate some of that awkwardness. Um, We're not sure how often that we're going to be able to do these types of legacy episodes, so we're going to cherish every episode like this uh, as much as we can. Um, So with that said, our guest today almost needs no introduction as his work speaks for itself. Uh, He's a Grammy Award-winning mastering engineer and Pensado Award recipient. A few of his credits include Allison Krauss and Union Station and Berlin. I want to know more about this because I didn't know this until I was looking on your website, but I didn't know that uh, you did anything for the Backstreet Boys. Um, Bare Naked Ladies, Black Eyed Peas, Evanescence, Jane's Addiction, Maroon 5, OAR, POD, Reliant K, Three Days Grace, Keith Urban. Uh, this was not on your website. Hidden Hospitals, which I absolutely love, like the stuff that you do, and I'm pretty sure Jay Hall mixes that, and it just sounds incredible. And then most recently... Uh, the new album by the Dave Matthews Band, Come Tomorrow, which has become, like, in my mind, it's just a masterpiece of an album, and I'd never say that. Um, so in case you are living under a rock, you have not turned on a radio since 2000 or are just experiencing music for the first time in your life, welcome. Uh, our guest today is no other than Brad Blackwood of Euphonic Masters in Memphis, Tennessee. Welcome, Brad, Thank to you. the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Good to be here. You got it. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to chat with us. Uh, And if I'm not mistaken, uh, I've seen you post several times that this year Euphonic is celebrating their 15th year in operation, correct? That's correct. Awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, we started in March of 2003, so we've had a good run so far. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that is definitely something to strive towards. And that's uh, that's all in the same room or through different rooms? No, when we uh, when we started Euphonic, um, it was literally just a, a spare bedroom uh, in our house. Uh, didn't have the budget really to build a, a full-on room. We stayed there for about mm-hmm. three years and then built the room that we're currently in now. Um, so we've been here since, um, well, I guess it was about four years. We've been here since 07. Okay. Okay. Well, very cool. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's incredible. You're just, you're operating out of your house and that, I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty cool luxury. Well, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we built this room. Yeah, we built this room in 07. The first one was, yeah, it was at our house when we lived 
Uh, at our, it was actually another house that we had before we moved back in 04. So that's where we kept the, Very the first cool. studio, yeah. Very cool. Well, as I said earlier, uh, we really want to more talk with you about philosophies as opposed to gear. Mm -hmm. What allows you to stay in this business for the long haul? And that is like, i.e., taking care of yourself. Um, and then kind of my first question that I have for you is I've seen, uh, I've seen you post this several times and it was I think I've heard you talk a little bit about this maybe on other podcasts while doing my research and even before. Um, every morning it seems like you post, or at least you used to post quite often, that you used to do a what you call a morning listen as yeah. a way to start sure. your day. Do you want to unpack that for us at sure, all? Sure, sure. No, I mean, I, I do that every morning, every working morning. I have a morning listen. I don't always share it. Because uh, it's kind of like a meal. It's not like everybody wants to see what you're eating. I, no, nobody, nobody's always <laughs> what I'm listening to that morning. But every once in a while, something it strikes me in a particular way when I'm listening to it. And I think, man, I want to share this one. But um, basically, it's just kind of a way for me to warm up in the in the morning. I always feel like um, listening to something that it doesn't have to be a, a, a sonically incredible record. It can be something that actually is you know kind of old and, cr and crunchy or whatever. But it's just something that sort of helps me. Um, wake up and, and get recentered, if you will, with my ears. Because um, a lot mm. of times when you first get up in the morning, the first few hours, you're a little cloudy, whatever. Um, this kind of helps me. It's usually a record that I'm pretty familiar with. It's rarely something brand new. Um, and so I, I know what mm -hmm. it sounds like. And I can sort of kind of, you know, figure out where where I am, if that makes any sense. But um, that's been a part of my, my morning habit forever. I come in, I'll do paperwork and answer emails for the first hour or so before I actually start the first session. And that gives me a perfect time to just listen to usually one album just all the way through. Hmm. No, that's, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's fantastic, especially in like a world that's in it's like more times than not such a whirlwind, just being able to have the, it's, it's a discipline almost to be able to sit down and just listen to a finished piece of work mm -hmm. when all you do all day is listen to music and just kind of be calm and whatever you do during that time, like that—that's kind of a discipline. It is it as is. much as it is a joy. Yeah. It is, but it's it, you know, it's not unlike um, it's um, it's not unlike stretching before you go through a workout, a physical workout. It's sort of mm. just kind of a warm up for me. It's a way to kind of you know reorient my e my hearing and my ears and and just kind of get get the feeling. And like I said, it's usually something that I really like musically. It's something that really moves me and that kind of gets me in a good mood mm -hmm. emotionally to grab, jump into something, you know, whether the record that I'm working on that day, I don't know at that point, but whether it's going to be something I really enjoy or maybe don't enjoy as much, um, either way, <laughs> it kind of gets you in the right mood so that you're ready to listen to some music and, and make it sound as good as it can. Yeah, definitely. So... Do you have any? Uh, do you have any go-to favorites that you might recycle through the morning listen a little too much? Um, probably anything uh, early to mid ACDC or mid to late okay. Pink, mid to late Pink Floyd. Those are kind of my oh. two probably favorite all-time bands, and um, I could listen to Back in Black just about every morning. I think and never get tired of it. But. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> or Highway to Hell, or you know, any number of those records. Um, but those two, I, I tend to, I tend to make myself stay away from Pink Floyd and, and ACDC sometimes because otherwise that would be uh, probably a lot of my morning listens. I really enjoy a lot of their work. 
No, that's 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 great. My uh, my go to right now is the uh, the Wish You Were Here album by Pink Floyd. Yeah. It's just like how everything starts, how the album flows, like how jarring it can be in certain points. It's like, for me, it's like that's that's my current go-to if I have a listen during the day. Yeah, and you know, in a day and age when a lot of remasters have been done that are really atrocious compared to the originals, um, when <laughs> mm-hmm. James Guthrie and the whole crew went back and redid these, um, I guess it was probably five or ten years ago now, and made those big 180, you know, uh, 180 gram pressings. They sound spectacular. I mean, the the vinyl is so mm-hmm. quiet. The pressings are so good. It just really, really sounds fantastic. It's uh, sometimes I have to remind myself or I have to really listen to make sure. Oh yeah, there's a little tick. There's a little pop because they're, they're, the surface <laughs> noise is just so almost non-existent, um, <laughs> and it really just comes out of the speakers. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so kind of kind of moving forward. Um, Sam and I have noticed uh, while doing our research, and then I've been following you on Instagram for a while, uh, noticing that you have other hobbies that extend beyond music and that uh, you like smoking meat, you like craft beer, and you have a passion for off-roading. Yeah. It, do you think at all that those kind of tie in with the mentality of what you do during the day, during your work day? Um, I think... I think cooking. I think there's a real correlation between cooking and preparing food and, yes. and mastering records or, or mixing is probably a, probably a better correlation to, to cooking. But um, I don't do any mixing. But I just there's something about taking something that's not finished and finishing it, and not just not just cooking it, but cooking it in a way that that pleases uh, most people. That uh, it seems to relate a lot to what we do because I mean I can make a record sound what I think sounds great and. 95% of the people can think it sounds great, but there's still going to be a few people that don't mm-hmm. like it. And the same thing's true with any food that yeah. you make. Um, it, mm-hmm. It's very subjective. Um, and so I, I do. I tend to think that, you know, you're aesthetic and if, if you want to be a cook and you're a master engineer and you're, you're a good master engineer, you can probably be a pretty good cook and vice versa. I think if, you, if you're somebody Agreed. that understands taste and kind of understands figuring out what people like and that sort of a thing, I think those things translate a little bit. Um, but I, I don't, I'm not really as much a cook we're making i'm making tons of different things as i really do enjoy running the smoker i love cooking pork and and beef on the smoker what can i say i'm a primitive man in that regard but um <laughs> off-roading i don't know that there's red any, blooded american yeah I don't, I don't know that there's any correlation between uh between off-roading and and the music industry if you will any you know, overlap um i i'm kind of glad there isn't i think that i think i see some guys that they look like they work, you know, 15, 20 hours a day and all they ever post about and all they ever think about and all they ever talk about is uh, is recording and making music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that passion is healthy, but I think you have to have other things in your life to balance it out. I think you can be, I think it can be an unhealthy obsession if you let it get too, too big in your life. And um, so I think it's important to, you know, I look, for, I look for things that I can do that I can add in that take time away from it so that this can't be an all-consuming thing. Yeah. It, it shouldn't be that for us. I mean, it's something that all of us that are involved with it love music. We love what we're doing. Um, I, think it's, I think you can be more fresh if you have some time away from it than if you just do it all the time. Yeah. Hmm. Have you always been that way, Brad? Or was there a time where you were starting and you were working, you know, 12, 15 hours straight and it just consumed you. Was that a, a discipline you had to create of, oh, I need to, I need to cut myself off here and go, you know, 
off-roading or something. Because I know for me, you know, I've been in this for almost 10 years. And the first, like, four or five years, it consumed me like you described. And it Mm -hmm. pretty much took me having a full-blown kind of mental breakdown and my wife being like, you need to you need to go do something else because <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is not going to be um, sustainable essentially for the long term thinking about a career of like, you know, 50 years or something, which is what, you know, I'm hoping to be able to do this till I'm old. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I remember, you know, a few years ago really hitting a place kind of having work going, but then looking around my room and being like, is this the next 50 years? Like, is this it? Is it me turning knobs, you know, talking to my gear essentially in silence and listening? (laughs) And I was kind of like, I need to figure out (laughs) what else I can do or add to my life to get that distance and create that little bit of space, I think, to have clarity. So was there ever a moment for for you kind of like that or did you have a mentor or someone kind of give you that wisdom without you having to hit a, you know, I call it like a hit a brick wall or something. I I wish I could, you know, claim that it was some wisdom that I had or inherited or, or, or something like that. It's really something I think I just stumbled upon. I mean, for the first yeah. um, probably five or six years of running Euphonic, I never took a vacation. I would send my wife and kids, they'd, they'd go to the beach with friends and stuff like that. And I would stay and work. I just, I just, mm. It's what I, I felt like I had to. It was like I was running my own business yeah. now. I, don't, mm-hmm. I can't take time off. Um, and finally, yeah. uh, one summer I did. I took a week off, and it was like about day five of the vacation, I finally felt like I could let go and disconnect and enjoy it a little bit. And I did that for about a day, yeah. mm. and then we had to turn around and come back. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I realized at that point <laughs> just how much it was consuming, you know, how much it was it was yeah. taking up my thoughts and my CPU cycles. Um because even now, when I'm not working, if I'm sitting at home on my laptop, I generally answer emails, you know, through the evening, early in the morning, all these sorts of things. Yeah. I'm, I'm constantly still shuffling and juggling because there's really not yeah. enough hours in the day to just just do mastering records, especially when you're like right. me and you're running your own mm-hmm. business. You know, I'll do whatever, 50, 75 emails a day. And so it's like there's a lot of give and take that I can't do while I'm sitting in the chair in the mastering room. So... Um, yeah, I think that, you know, I've kind of, I kind of fell into it. I'd, I'd, like I said, I'd love to claim to be, you know, like all this, this wise, I, I had this premonition or now it was just, I kind of figured it out one day, luckily. And, and it, I got it before it got me. So, you know, yeah, I was able to start incorporating that hmm. in my life a little bit. Yeah. That's great. No, yeah, that's so important. And I mean, where I am right now, um, I've been, and I wouldn't say like a full practicing mastering engineer. I've been studying for about the past six years and maybe only solid practicing, really hammering for about two and a half, three years. And it's it, it's kind of to the point to where uh, stuff is a bit consuming and uh, I'm realizing that I have a family that I also need to take care of. Yeah. And how do I how do I maintain this juggle or like like how do I set my schedule so that there is that free time so I mean that's definitely something that I'm trying to look out and ask and learn about and like how people manage those schedules because I mean I'm doing um 
uh, you, as you uh, you might not know, I Sam and I we both do our mastering in Logic, and then we'll finalize uh, metadata and everything else in sequencing. We'll do that in Triumph, and I can do all the Triumph stuff from at home on my laptop. Well, I'll do all my mastering. Then when the kid goes to bed, because um, I it's like it's like the least favorite thing in my life is to miss when he goes to bed, and so. It'll be at night, like nine o'clock at night, and I'm sequencing an album and like entering all this stuff, and I'm not spending time with my wife, and I'm realizing this is bad. Yeah. So I'm just like, I guess I'm just trying to absorb from y'all, and I think we're eventually going to do an episode on scheduling, and it might be more for me than anybody else. <laughs> but I, but the thing that I've realized through life is that chances are, if you're going through something, then somebody else is. So the whole thing of making this community is at least to like say, Hey, you're not alone in this. And this is what we did to combat that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, there has to be some dedicated effort. There's no question about it because it, it, the clients and I don't, you don't blame them because they're only going to, they're only going to call you and talk to you and, communicate with you when like the stores open so to speak um but they don't ever know when that is and especially if they're on the other side of the world or whatever and they email call and uh, they just they want they need their stuff done when they need it done and so you have to sort of set those those um those limits on yourself or it it will it can just consume you and it's not the client's fault like i said they're just they just need their stuff done and they don't know how busy or not busy you are or anything else um Mm -hmm. yeah and so yeah scheduling is really tricky too i mean i'm not going to sidetrack that right out of the gate here because i know you said you made you an entire thing on it but that's something that i think has taken me take it away take it away i mean that's one that's (laughs) honestly something that's taken me probably uh it took me 10 or 15 years to get a handle on really how to schedule it so that I don't end up with these huge dead spots in my schedule and I don't end up yeah. uh, conversely coming in and cutting an album and EP and, and a couple singles and then having a parts order come in from a big record where I have to you know make parts mm. and QCM for three, three or four different formats, which then just blows your day open. Um, mm-hmm. So that's been really tricky over the years kind of figuring that out. That's I don't have any secrets to share, so to speak, but you mentioned that and I just kind of nodded my head here. I'm thinking, yeah, that's... That's a huge one right there is trying to figure that out because, uh, like I said, you don't want to sit there and have half your day open when you – turning right. stuff away mm-hmm. or, or moving it down the schedule when you could be doing it. But by the same token, you don't want to you know fill your schedule up every day to the point that you're working 16, 17 hours. At least I don't. I don't have any interest in doing that. Yeah. Talk about fatiguing. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Um, so speaking of fatigue, something I didn't put in our schedule – um, so taking care of yourself throughout the day, like, are you taking regular, like, breaks on your ears and, like, on your mind? I mean, this is, like, a pretty, like, mentally intense thing that that's going on. It's not just like, oh, yeah, well, this goes here and this goes here. In some places it may, may be, but some material is fairly challenging. So do you take those breaks throughout the day yeah. or are you just kind of powering through? No, well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, there are breaks. I usually try to stop listening for 10 or 15 minutes of every hour, you know, and whether that's just yeah. to stop to answer some emails or something like that, I'll just turn everything off. I mean, really, honestly, it's not uncommon for me to just be listening to something, working on a single or working on a sequence of an album, whatever, and I'll just stop the music for 30 seconds and then just hit play again. And hmm. it's really amazing how quickly your ears sort of reset. If you're hearing something yeah. and you're listening to it over and over again, you sort of lose objectivity for, for a little bit, especially if it's nonstop. And then you take that little break, even if it's just a short 30-second 30 30 or, thir- or a minute-long break, suddenly it's like you 
are hearing it fresh again a little bit and your ears have kind of reset themselves. Mm. So I do that throughout the day. Um, it, it's also, I mean, I think it's really important. Um, this job is, as I've described to people, it's like the most sedentary job in the world combined <laughs> with mm-hmm. like this really emotionally draining at the same time. Because, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, I consider myself more of a craftsman than like an artist, right? But it's still, you're, you're yes. kind of pouring yourself into this work all day emotionally. And so um, by the end of the day, a lot of times I'm, Physically, I'm fine, but I just feel mentally drained. So yeah. mm. um, I really have been proactive over the years of trying to get up, like in the mornings. Like, most mornings, I get up at like 4:30 and go and work out and and really get at it and try to to get some exercise because I know that for a block of six or eight hours that day, I'm going to be sitting up here just in my chair, mm-hmm. you know, listening to music and not being very active. Um, and I think that. I think that focusing on your physical health is also just as important as focusing on your mental health. Like we spoke about earlier with yeah. vacations and stuff. I think you have to, um, I think you have to be proactive about that in this industry because it's very easy for for the lifestyle to just make you slow down and get fat and unhealthy. Yes. Yeah. There's a there's a lot of pizza in the music business. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. There's a there's a ton of bad habits. And that's that's what I try to avoid. <laughs> yeah. You know, now, especially now as I get older, Lots it's. Of- uh, I'm, I'm realizing that I, I can't make a lot of the same choices I did 20 years ago. But, uh, I, you know, I just I, I hope guys can be – if there's one thing they can pick up, it's like, yeah, be proactive about your health because you don't want to you don't yeah. want to wake up and be that guy or you don't want to be a guy that's, you know, dies of a heart attack in your mid-50s because you just didn't take care of yourself. Right. So. Mm-hmm. right. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, right after this, I'm going to a listening party of an album I just mastered and on the – Facebook private thing they have uh yeah there will be pizza and beer provided I'm like of course there will be I'm excited for it yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited for it but it's, it's, I mean, you know, there's it, a lot of pizza in the music business and there's a lot of beer and uh I've got no problem with yeah. the beer as as you know um but uh I <laughs> yeah. do try to keep it you know under control there because it's uh, it can be a bad habit if you're not too careful those craft beers pile up in a hurry yeah oh my gosh yeah and I a couple of years ago I got into whiskey and bourbon and now i've been on this scotch kick for a while mm-hmm. and it just it's beautiful but it's like we gotta we gotta watch it <laughs> yeah you do you have to be careful it'll sneak up on you if you're not too careful there that's it so um that actually jumped ahead to uh to another question of uh how to be how to kind of be in the game for a long haul and i think we'll come back to that but uh kind of jumping back into the audio side so you have like Lander and Aria and a couple of these other auto mastering services. And you have a lot of guys who now offer uh, a service, uh, mixing and mastering, mixing slash mastering. Um, And I'm just curious, like, from a mastering engineer who's been in this for a while, uh, what do you think, at least just, and this is kind of a form where if we're wrong, then that's fine. But it's just kind of predicting where do you think like the future of this lies? Um, that's a that's a tough question. It's one I've asked myself a number of times over the years, even before you know technology has gotten to where it is, and so on and so forth. I mean, first of all, I think we're at a unique place um, musically in our history because we're at a place where there's more music being released now than ever before. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. The the incredible drop in the cost of just being able to record um, alone has just made it where it's, I mean, it's accessible to anybody. I mean, literally anybody that's got a, a cell phone 
could make a record. I mean, it may not be a great sounding record, but it, I mean, yeah. it'd be pretty amazing sounding compared to what you could have done 30 years ago with that with the same amount of technology. So, um, I mean, it's, um, I think that where we are is there's more work now than ever and there's more people wanting the, yeah. the pieces of the pie, but it doesn't seem like I've seen, I've, I mean, I've not seen a drop off or a change in my workload. Um, if hmm. anything, I, I think people realize now more than ever that having an engineer, an experienced engineer with, you know, great speakers and a great room and so on and so forth at the end of the chain is helpful, even if they kind of cut corners early on because they didn't have the budget or whatever reason. Um, yeah. And so I do get a lot of projects now that guys did themselves and they're literally in their bedrooms, you know, with, with just the equipment they have. Uh, and some of those sound astonishingly good. Um, they just need a little mm. nip and a tuck and a tweak here and there to really make them sound great. And um, so, I mean, from that standpoint, I, I don't worry about the future um, of the business. I think there's always going to be business there as long as people are making music. Um, whether or not the automated systems can get there, I don't know. And that's just simply because I'm ignorant about just how far this AI can get in like in my lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, there's one thing to say does it processes it, but like when people have brought up these automated systems before, my question has always been, and I honestly haven't taken the time to do it because I don't. It's not really something I care enough to know. But if you take a track that is already mastered and sounds just great, and you run it through one of these mm. systems, does it change it or does it leave it alone? You know, a good engineer is going to listen to it and go, "This mix sounds fantastic. I don't need to do anything." Right. Um, right. The other question is, if you were to take it and you run it through one of these automated systems, and then you take the the result and run that through the automated system, does it change it or leave it alone? And so that that right <laughs> so there shows interesting. You, that right away that shows you is it listening or is it literally just taking something and processing right. it through a, a certain algorithm based on some variables? Um, and that's the difference I think between an experienced you know good master engineer and and just an automated system is you know yeah. we're responding subjectively to what we're what we're being given. And that's the reason why you could give the same track to multiple mastering engineers and it's gonna sound different. Even right. multiple mm -hmm. good mastering engineers, it'll sound different um, because everyone has their own take on it. And I think a lot of what makes a guy become like a popular engineer is because he hears things in a way that most people really like to hear things. And so when he makes yeah. it sound good to him, a lot of people agree with that. It's sort of like the bell curve, he's right in the middle of it. Um, Hmm. And so um, I, I don't know. I think the automated systems can eventually get there where they're actually that intelligent. But will they ever rival the sort of subjective nature of what an engineer brings to the table? I, I can't really answer that. I'm just too ignorant about uh, what the possibilities are with regards to AI. Yeah, and I feel like whenever that question's being asked, you almost have to answer it with another question of, why are you mastering this in the first place? Yeah. Because are, are you mastering it for it to be loud? Are you mastering it? Like, in the, like, very bare-bones sense of everything, you are trying... You, you want this thing that you've labored over in front of a fresh set of ears. Yeah. And, I mean, just in, like, in of, like, a computer, it's like... Is it actually going to be able to stand up to what a fresh set of ears, a subjective set of ears, would be able to say is right or wrong about yeah. this? Well, I mean, 20 years ago, that was, the finalizer was the big thing that was going to end mastering. I mean, the, when it first came mm. out, that was everybody was talking about that. It was like, hey, this is this thing. Yeah. Anybody can now master records and make them super loud. Um, and of course, they don't even you know they haven't made those things in a decade. 
um, and a bunch of us are still around. So, I mean, I think that there's a certain amount of – for that to take over, it's going to have to be programmed very intelligently. But you're right. It's like why are you doing this? What's the point of it? Is it just to get loud? And there is a lot of misconception amongst – uh, listeners uh, about what mastering is. I think a lot of people still think it's about making the record loud. That's the most noticeable difference yeah. most of the time, obviously. Um, but there's a lot of people who, um, you, know, you can go to some of these forums where they actually analyze the overall level of records, and there's some pretty intelligent discussions that happen, but then they'll say things like, well, the mastering engineer overcompressed this album. And, you <laughs> yeah. know, mm-hmm. at that point you go, well, how, how do you, if you haven't heard the mixes, how do you even know where it happened? Exactly. So there's still a lot of misconceptions, <laughs> I think, out there about, you know, who's doing what or what the job entails and things things of that nature. And, and you know, when I had the forum that I used to run called Mastering Demystified, that was the whole point of it. It was like I wanted to get as much information out there as I could because there's a lot of guys out there that try to still sell, like, their services, like they have this magic black box or they can hear, right. you know, something happening from a mile away or whatever. And it's it's simple. It's, it's far more simple than that, in my opinion. If people could understand the process better, I think they would feel better about mastering than thinking they're sending it off to some magician who's going to sit in a hood somewhere with right. a, you know, skull and do some magic on it. <laughs> yep. Well, Brad, you're saying you don't have a crystal ball? Do not have a crystal. I do have a lava lamp, but it's not working right now. So. <laughs> Well, that, that's sure mandatory that for all studios, yeah, right? It's it's old school. It's one of the old school ones too. It's, it's not the, it's the brass base, not the plastic base. So, <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, it's original. <laughs> I'm, I'm an old guy, so you know. <clears throat> <laughs> hey, Sam, you want to take the reins on the next two? Yeah, I mean, I would love to just touch. I mean, I I resonate with what you just said about people thinking things are overcooked or overcompressed, and they don't get to hear the mixes because. As, uh, like, Matt knows, the more I start to kind of do more label work and stuff, I'm constantly getting... uh, I just got mixes sent to me that were, like, essentially negative 5 RMS already Mm -hmm. um, for a label project. And it was one of those things where I mastered it, you know, to what they said, which was basically, like, make it even louder. And then uh, post-delivery of everything... uh, one of the guys in the band was like, hey, do you think the mixes were over-compressed? And did that, um, he said, did that compromise your the end result for us? So that was like a, a tricky question, but I get asked that quite a bit, and I'll have people also comment, start to comment as I'm, you know, I'm just starting to do albums that people kind of know, mm-hmm. and they're associating that over-compression with my style, and sure. I'm wondering if, you, if you're willing to speak into that you know, how do you approach or navigate, you know, if you get a mix that's that's really compressed, and I'll, I'll try to educate, I really like what you said about the demystifying thing, and that's kind of why Matt and I started this, and mm-hmm. I try to, you know, spend a lot of time educating all my clients, but could you help me understand how you kind of navigate, if you get an overcompressed mix, are they flexible to give you an uncompressed mix, or what do you do in that situation? It really depends largely on the client, honestly. Um, yeah. uh, I have some. I have a, one major label client, um, a label that sends me all their stuff, and they know exactly what they're doing. They've been doing this for a long time at a very successful, yeah. you know, at a high level. And uh, so when I get mixes from one of these, you know, guys, and it just looks like a block of cheese, um, yeah, 
they've approved the mixes. And that's how right. I approach it 90% of the time anyways, 95% of the time. Mm. The, the mixes come to me, they're already approved, or I wouldn't have gotten them in the first place. So they like the right. way they sound. Mm. Um, can I work with that or not? There have been occasions when I've reached out and said, hey, look, I mean, the kick drum is literally distorting on the mix, and I can't do yeah. anything without making it worse. Can we back right. off just a couple dB? Um in those situations, I'll reach out. But, you know, it, it's gotten to the point where I've just really, frankly, gotten pretty good at, at cutting records that came in that loud to begin with. Um, you know, right. it's just kind of part of the gig nowadays. Um, I wish that guys wouldn't do that. I wish that they would print, you know, unclipped or unlimited mixes as right. well just so that we have something to work with. And a lot of guys do that. There are some really great engineers out there, well-known guys, that will send off the loud versions for their clients, but they send really nice, dynamic mixes to right. mastering, you know? Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. At the end of the day, does the music still move somebody? Is it still sound good? Is it is it is it yeah. affecting the listener the way they want it to affect them? And ultimately, that's what it's all about. It's not really uh, about making these kind of audiophile mixes. I mean, if that's what the client wants, right. that's fantastic. I'll do that all day long. But if, if, they, right. if they're just looking to move the listener in a certain direction uh, and the mix does that, then I don't have any problem with it and I'll make it work. Yeah. Yeah, that's mm. kind of, I mean, that's essentially, you know, Matt and I have talked about over the last couple of years, like, I've kind of landed in that same spot, more so, especially at the start of this year. I literally had a client say, like, just stop fighting it and, like, serve the artist or serve the client. Like, if they want it that way, it's approved, then then honor that. And that was a, a really big, for me at least, a moment of, like, yeah, you know what? it doesn't have to be a certain number. It, it's exactly what you just said of like needing to move or, you know, if it, if it moves people or if it's even what everybody signed off on, then, you know, who am I to go back and say you mixed it wrong, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. When everybody I, I, there's else has already signed off on it. Yeah. Speaking of the loudness thing, and this is a nice transition, really, it, 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 there's too many people that are too focused on numbers and on how the yeah. waveform looks. And they, and I mean other mastering engineers mm. out there. I, I constantly, I mean, like every day I'm scrolling through Facebook at one point or another, and I'll see somebody say, oh, the, the, the loudness wars are over. See, I had this client. That, <laughs> and it's like I just kind of yeah. chuckle and I go, man, 80% of my clients still want it loud. And they specifically yep. ask for that. Hey, it's mm -hmm. not as loud as you know, so-and-so's new record or whatever. And so, uh, you know, that's why I keep cutting records the way I do. And they come out, if I cut a loud record, it's not just because I decided to make it loud. Um, yeah. And so when guys say that, it kind of makes me scratch my head. And I, could, I go, well, I guess we just have really different clients. Because um, right. I, you know, most of my guys, they just, they still want it loud. They want it, they, they right. want it to be a big, loud record. They, they're... A lot of artists are just really, honestly, they're scared. They're, they don't want to be different. They're afraid that if they make a record that's really dynamic and punchy and all those sorts of things that we know actually sounds quote-unquote better, um, right. that the listeners won't enjoy it. I, to be fair, though, yeah. I've, I literally don't recall ever having a listener complain that a record was too quiet. I've never, you know, hmm. just been out listening with some friends and they you throw on a record from like the 90s or the 80s that are aren't really loud, and they go, oh, I can't listen to that. It's too quiet. Or I had to right. reach over and turn it up. You know, it's like nobody, yeah. the only time it could bother you if it was too dynamic was if you're driving in your car, you know, and it's loud because you have a loud noise floor right. and then you can't hear the quiet parts. But other than that, it's like I just, I don't recall ever hearing people complain about that. But the artists are really terrified of, of being different. And that's kind of, that's that's a very small part of a huge problem in the industry right now, in the music industry, is this sort of, um, follow the leader approach to art instead of truly being true to what's going on in your heart and soul, you know, and, and having it represent who mm. you are. 
No, that's awesome. Um, so I guess staying on loudness, I mean, where do, where do you normally fall? And I've seen that, I mean, not even talking about gear, you have, I think it's like, uh, you, you have a couple VU meters that it looks like you monitor from. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you just kind of monitoring to whatever level you have that set at? Or mm, much. is there like a certain number that you typically hit to? Are mm-hmm. you looking at RMS, LUFS, or VU? Like, like how, what's your philosophy on all this? It's 99% with my <clears throat> VU meters. I do have a, I used to have Doro meters, uh, the physical hardware meters. I do have the, the software Doro meters now that I keep up as well. But I mean, for the most part, I don't really, I don't really pay much attention to the meters. I just, I, I, I just listen to it. I, you know, it really, when, mm-hmm. when it's starting, when it's starting to squeeze, when it's starting to get too loud or crunchy or whatever, then okay, well, that's that's definitely too loud. Um, it, I listen at a, a relatively the same level, you know, most of the time. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's like I, I know if something just feels quiet to me, too quiet, or if it feels too loud and it's getting up in my face too much. Um, but yeah, it's basically just the VU meters and I'll glance at the Doro every now and then. And that's, that's about it. I don't worry about, I don't sit there and worry about like, I have all those meters that come with like insight and all these things where I can look at it and measure all these things if I need to, but I just don't, I, it doesn't, I don't get hung up on all that. It's, it's more about making it sound good. And if it sounds good, the client's going to be happy and that's what really matters. And, um, right mm. now I, I see guys chasing the, you know, the different, levels uh you know luffs uh for the online especially the digital distribution stuff and the problem is there's no set target right now there's like three or four different they're all a few within a few db for the most part but there's no set target and mm-hmm. so I, yeah. I hear guys talking all the time about well should i cut it at this level or that level and this and, that and the other and it just seems um seems premature to start cutting stuff permanently at a level that you don't know what this what the what the end game is going to be you know um so I just try to cut it and make it sound good. And uh, so far, no one's had any problems. I haven't heard any complaints. Um, things seem to sound good on YouTube and everywhere else. So um, it's that simple for me. Just make it sound good and don't worry. Let everything else sort itself out. Eventually, I think we'll get to a point where there's some sort of a standard. Um, but even then, I don't know if that'll make any difference. I mean, the reality is um, if I turned in a record right now that was averaging, you know, whatever, minus 14 luffs, um, most of the labels are going to come back and be like, hey, it sounds great. Turn it up three or four dB. I mean, that's just the yeah. reality of it. Most That's that's going to happen most of the time. Um, so, you know, I just make it sound good. That's the, that, To me, that's what it all stems around. Rosers, uh, whatever, you know what I'm trying to say. Orbits around, whatever. <laughs> make it sound good. That's, that's mind it. If, <clears throat> mind if I ask what your VU meter's set at? Uh, uh, zero VU is minus nine. DBFS. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and I, I always just I always just find it interesting just because Sam's getting some label projects like he said where uh, they're saying we wanted it minus four. I just had a project and they wanted it at minus five, and it's just like okay, if that if if that type of thing matters to you enough, I can make that happen. Um, just know that you're gonna lose like a, you you may lose a little bit. Of dynamics going that loud. Yeah, so. that's, that's interesting hearing you, you just, say that. I don't think I've ever had a label ever give me a number like that. That's interesting to hear because um, 
they're all, they, I mean, they'll just say, hey, we want to, you know, we, we need this louder. Can you make squeeze a little more out of it? That kind of a thing. Um, I've never had somebody come along and go, hey, we want this to be minus this. So that's interesting to hear that you're getting that because I've not, I've not come across that yet. I don't know how I'd respond if they said that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and Sam, I think it was you recently that you, like, I think it was this week you had that happen to you. Yeah, and it's more so, you know, and I guess I'd be curious about your thoughts on this too. You know, a lot of bands are now, they're signed, but they'll have, like, just distribution deals or something like sure. that. So they're way more involved to me in the process mm -hmm. than maybe before. And I'm having direct contact with the bands themselves as well as the people on the label. And that's, you know, it's kind of been interesting because there's this sh been this shift, kind of like you talked about earlier, with people being able to make music, you know. And a lot of bands now are essentially producing mm -hmm. a lot of their, you know, demos sound like almost the finished product. Yes. And I think that's where, you know, I'm starting to hear people give me numbers or, you know, RMS or LUFS. Yeah. I mean, don't Because had... they have this... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I've had plenty of artists, um, especially, and this is kind of a cool part of it. There are more artists now who understand sort of the technical aspect of the business now than probably ever before. Yes. Um, so they're not yeah. just going, hey, we want it to sound more purple. They come <laughs> along and go, hey, we, you know, I do have guys come along and say, hey, we listen back to it. We love it. I, you know, I wanted to bring a little more presence to the mid range. So I added, you know, yeah. 3DB, mm -hmm. at, 3DB at 1.5K. Can you do that for me? And I'll go, yeah, I'll, I'll get right on that. And I'll tweak it. And <laughs> right. obviously I won't add 3DB because that's, ridiculous amount but <laughs> right. you know you do like whatever have to be or whatever that, that, and they love it and it sounds great but they I knew exactly what they were hearing because they could give me some actual numbers instead of them come back going with hmm. there's just I can tell a quick story there when we did the Maroon 5 record um, this yeah. is goodness that was probably six seven years ago now um, with Mike Shipley uh, Mutt Lang's producing and they, they the first single is they're working on it they have it up on the console literally for like 30 days I mean it's a Spent a ton of money there at Glenwood doing this. Yeah. But mm -hmm. um, they have Misery up, and they keep trying to make it sound the way, and the band keeps coming back and going, we want it more punchy. We want it more punchy. And so they keep adding more and more big bottom in, making the kick really thump, and it gets to the point where it's just ridiculous. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, mm -hmm. the bottom in so big, and they keep coming back going, it's still not, that's not right. We want it to be punchy. And um, so the, the label president calls me, and we have this big powwow, and... And I go back and listen to the early mixes that they were referencing and what they really liked about it. And what they were calling punchy was what we would call like adding mid-range presence, like one two K. And for whatever reason, that, in hmm. their mind, that was they were calling that punchy. And so I said, well, why don't we try this? Do a recall. Go back to this mixed version. And, da -da -da. and they they did that, and it was it was perfect. That's exactly what they wanted. Um, so that was at that time. They probably you know more now, but at that time, that was just they they're using these sort of very vague terms that don't really have a quantifiable meaning. And to those of yeah. us in the industry, if somebody says punchy, you're probably thinking, you know, bottom end, kick drum, kind of that kind of thing. And right. they were thinking more like snare drum, you know? Um, and so, yeah. yeah, we got it dialed in. Everything was great. Yay, everybody's happy. But it just shows you that that terminology game is really rough when you're trying to, like, yeah. do something and figure out what they want, whereas they come along and go... Hey, uh, you know, I added so and so at this frequency, and it really feels like what I want. You can go back and listen and play around with it and hear what they're hearing, and go, okay, I totally get what they're saying now, and you can dial it in accordingly yeah. from there. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, funny thing about the moves like Jagger single, uh, 
and that that you did, correct? Correct. I was in Asia when that came out, or probably three or so months after that came out. And every city I would go to, at least one person in a restaurant would have that as their ringtone. <laughs> it was the most bizarre thing. But if it's any consolation to you, it sounded fantastic. Oh, cool. Their ringtone sounded <laughs> top-notch. It was the, if I'm not mistaken, that was the biggest-selling single uh, the year it came out. It did over 8 million worldwide. Uh, wow. It was, a, it, was a, it was a big single for them. It was a transition for them, too. I mean, uh, I tell people all the time that I did, I feel like I did Maroon 5's last band record because it feels like after yeah. that mm. the, the moves like jagger you know was like that one single that was part of the album that or was actually added to the album after the fact um and the rest of the record was sort of like their older records that they were kind of band songs you know um poppy but they mm. were band songs and then that song comes out and like everything after that has been and i worked a, quite a bit on the next two records just doing eps and single releases and stuff like that and it was so yeah. different it was so much more pop oriented and it was like the band was Hmm. I'm sure that they play and they come up with parts and things of that nature, but it was so very seemed very different to me. It was a real transitional phase for them. But yeah, moves like Jagger was a big deal for them, absolutely. Well, it made a great ringtone for <laughs> everyone <laughs> over in Asia. <laughs> I've heard it. I've heard it way too many times. <laughs> That's true of most records. That's the funny part of being mastering is that you know by the time the record's released right. and everybody gets excited about it, we're sick of hearing it. You know, we've we've listened Absolutely. to it for a month or whatever, and it's like just uh, okay, so give me a break. <clears throat> yeah, I'll post sometimes. I'll be at a I'll be at a release show and. Uh, I'll post that, like, the coolest thing about being a mastering engineer is I'm the only one in the room who knows the lyrics. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, a quick question, kind of, like, zoom into the past, Um, and I'm keeping an eye on the clock. Um, So, for you right now, uh, what is mastering for you and how has that changed over the years? And I've asked other mastering engineers this, and they give me, oh, well, back in the day we used to do from tape and everything. I don't care about that. I want to know, like, psychologically for you, how has your mindset of mastering changed over the past 15 years of Euphonic being in business? And um, even when, I'm pretty you were doing mastering at Ardent before, correct? Correct, yeah. They had closed down. So Ar- even, yeah. even back then, even back then, Honestly, little has changed. Um, I still, uh, when I started mastering in the mid '90s, um, even then I had sort of an old school approach. You know, I wanted to I wanted to work through analog gear, and I wanted to, um, you know, process on load in, and uh, versus some of the guys who would load all the stuff in, and they'd make a loop through their through the analog gear, and so on and so forth. Um, I just sort of had this way that I wanted to work that was that was pretty old school in that regard. And um, that really hasn't changed for me. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that's changed for me is is getting away from uh, worrying about gear and worrying about a lot of the little technical things that I find guys still obsessing about a lot of times and and focusing nonstop on just making it sound good, making it, feel like it impacts emotionally the way they want it to, um, those kinds of things. That hasn't really changed. I just found that when I got rid of some of the clutter in my head about mastering, when I quit worrying about little details that that didn't always matter, um, 
it made it easier for me to focus on the art of, of mastering, the craft of mastering, of making stuff sound um, as good as it can in as many environments as possible where it translates really well, those sorts of things. It's become more difficult from the standpoint of translation. I think there's no question about that. Yeah. As, as car stereos mm-hmm. have gotten um, better, it's kind of been a bad thing in some ways because a lot of speakers, you know, you'll get a word that sounds great, but their car speakers are bottoming out because they have these huge yeah. amplified systems now that they crank up the bass on mm. Uh, of course, you got earbuds and phones and laptops and things like that. That twenty years ago we just didn't. Th- those weren't even things you. If somebody come along and said, "Hey, it didn't sound good on my laptop," we would have laughed. You're like, "Well, don't listen on your laptop," you know. Um, <laughs> but now that's. I mean, that's. This is the way people consume their music, and so we have to. I think that's why I've said for years that mastering is probably more important now than it's than it's really ever been. From yeah. the standpoint of translation, because every project I do is going to be played back on somebody's phone. It's going to be played back on earbuds or through the mono speaker on their phone. It's going to be played back on big hi-fi rigs, on big accurate car stereo systems and big inaccurate car stereo systems. It's going to be played back on mm-hmm. TV, radio, broadcast. There's no telling. The, the, and it's got to sound as good as it can in all, in all those environments. And so um, I think now more than ever, having a guy that's spent a lot of time in a room with speakers and knows how things sound, you know, how that translates um, is more important than it's ever been. Um, but uh, it's it's definitely more challenging in that regard. Other than that, though, philosophically, a little has changed for me. It's it's really just about, yeah, make it sound good, make it make sure it translates. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. And like, like you said, most people will get hung up on the gear and like importing sessions and stuff like that. It's like, oh, well, this is how it's changed for me. And it's like, that's not, that's not the question. So it's, yeah. it's cool to hear you say that. Um, so kind of a, a question that I think that we'll be asking everybody who's in on um, these sessions is, what advice would you pass down to the next generation of upcoming mastering engineers? Um, it, the, the hardest bit of advice to give people is one that I think is the most important, and that is, I think, the best way to get into the field of mastering and to learn it and to really, uh, to really get a grasp on it, be the best you can be, is the same way it's been for the last fifty years, and that's find a really good mastering engineer, and do whatever you have to do to work, you know, with them, beside them, for them for a while and get some experience. Um, The other Hmm. option is to get a job working as a mastering engineer, like for a label, or especially if you can, like I had the best of both worlds because I had, I was working at Ardent where we had a mastering room. Uh, We had three full on major, you know, big studios, tons of experienced engineers, guys who had, you know, been listening and making great records since I was in diapers. And, um, John Fry was the owner, and he had been a great mastering engineer and knew how to really make great-sounding vinyl back in the day. Um, and so it's mm. like I had all this stuff right there, and I was able to learn so much. And I, and I still I was there for seven years before I started Euphonic. Um, so it's like I think that's – but you know, most people don't want to do that. They don't want to hear that. What they want to hear yeah. is – Buy this piece of equipment, get this DAW, buy these wall treatments, you know, for your bedroom and these speakers, and you're going to be a mastering engineer. Um, but really, the gear is, it, while it's not unimportant, it's so far down the list 
you know, yeah. than mm-hmm. all the little things about the philosophy and the way you listen and how you hear things and and those sorts of things. And those things I learned from like John Hampton and John Fry far, far outweigh any of the gear choices I've ever made. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, I couldn't have, I would not have had that experience if I hadn't put my head down and just worked under those guys for years. Um, and that meant that when I got out of full sale, the first thing I did was I got a job up there and I, I wanted to get into mastering, but for the first year and a half, I was what they called a night guy. And I was just literally like answering phones, taking out the trash. I mean, it was just like the old school. This is how you start off. They mm. paid me minimum wage because John was a cool dude, but a lot of guys do that kind of stuff for free, you know? And, yeah. um, but I mean, it was worth it. It was absolutely worth it. And I think too many guys nowadays don't want to spend that time. They, they want to go right into it and start cutting records. And you can do that. There's been plenty of guys who've been successful who are self-taught. But if there's any way that you can find somebody and spend a few years learning from somebody that's been doing this for a few decades, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the the experience and the, the, the insight that you'll gain is just, I think it's so worth it. And that, that would be the biggest bit of advice that I, and it is the biggest bit of advice I give guys. Get into a studio ma- mm. where you're mastering, or at a label where you have a lot of stuff coming through, or get you know work with another mastering engineer and make him coffee and just listen to him and listen and have him explain what he's doing every now and then, and it's all the difference in the world, in my opinion. Well, thank you for that. And uh, something interesting you might not know. So, um, a couple about a year ago, um, I was. Uh, Sam had mastered an album that I helped engineer, Mm -hmm. and he was getting a little bit of notoriety around Nashville. And I say a little bit. He's probably getting, like, tons uh, because his work is awesome. And (laughs) I I saw that he had a mentoring page, and it probably took me two months to muster up the courage for me to ask for help, Um, just a pride thing that I have. And But I said, hey, would you be interested in... uh, a conflict of interest scenario and mentoring another mastering engineer. And so that's how Sam and I really got started. Um, and I didn't have the really the studio or anything else. And I, I, I work with a couple studios around town, um, but Sam really just kind of guided me in like, this is how you treat customers. This is how you treat this situation. And it, mm-hmm. it, it ended up being incredibly fruitful to where like my customer service, I try to make sure that like I'm giving at least like the best communication that I can and helping people out as much as need be. Sure. So it's like, so for people listening out there, um, just getting in touch with like a regular mastering engineer, they don't like Sam lives in Nashville. I live in Charleston. We're an eight hour drive away. Um, so it's like it doesn't even have to be someone close. It's like we're in a cool digital age where you can do a lot yeah, online. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, but I mean, if you can find a studio, if you can find a mastering house or an engineer just to just to pick his brain just for however long, take out the trash or whatever. I mean, that and, that that advice is invaluable. And I think it's also important that people realize that there's so there's so much work out there. That anyone yeah. who's like overly protective yes. and is unwilling to help like the other engineers around them, um, there's something going on there because it's not it's not this mm. is not we're not fighting for scraps. 
I mean, right. I know there's, mm-hmm. no, I know not everybody's really busy. I mean, I get that, but the reality is there's so much mastering work out there, and um, mm-hmm. if we help each other, it's only gonna, it's only gonna help you know the industry out, but it's gonna help you out in the long run. I, I'm not a believer in karma, but I do think that you know what you, the kind of the vibe that you give out comes back to you, and um, yeah. I, I've never been one to be really secretive about what we do or or how I do things. Um, because I mean, I could give you my entire chain and tell you exactly what I did and give you a new track and you're not going to do it the same way I would because right. it's just, I'm reacting and mm-hmm. you're going to react the way you hear it and your way might be better. I mean, I'm not, but I'm just saying it's going to be different. And so uh, I don't understand that. I've, I mean, I've, there's so many guys who are so guarded and secretive and, and they wouldn't, uh, they probably wouldn't help anybody even if they could. And I just don't understand that, that mindset. We should, we should be trying to help each other out because there's so much work out there. I mean, there really is. Yeah. Um, so it's just a matter of getting out there and letting people know that you can do it. And there are a lot of guys, to be fair, there are a lot of guys who are who probably put themselves out there too quickly and then they complain there's not work and that's because they really weren't ready to be, you know, ready to be there doing that. But um, yeah. there, there really is. There's so much. And so, I mean, I don't really do a lot of internships and stuff here just because it's all I can do to keep up with everything that I that I have going on. Um, but mm-hmm. I've, I mean, that's why I used to run the forum Mastering Demystified. That was a way of trying to help some guys, um, trying to get a gather of guys together. And we had some really, really great, talented engineers that were posting on that forum for years um, that helped disseminate a lot of really great information and great advice. Um, I mean, I learned a lot as the forum mod um, because there were guys on there that were mm. just incredibly talented, um, uh, incredibly experienced guys who were willing to share that. Um, so I think if we can all kind of do that and help each other out, it's just going to help the industry overall. It's just going to help us all be better. No, that's so incredible. And that's one thing that Sam just, almost every episode that Sam brings up is there is enough work out there for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's just like finding your genre, finding your niche and then expanding upon that. Exactly. And I think one of the most important things that Sam keeps on saying is, just stay in your lane and yeah. stop trying to do something that you're not doing, like mm-hmm. that you shouldn't be doing. Exactly. Well, Brad, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, once again, I mean, this is like just under six months of being live. We're just under 14,000 downloads, and we could not be more thankful for everyone who's tuned into this. Yes. We really hope to do more of these uh, these legacy episodes and just be able to pick people's minds, see what advice they want to pass down to uh, the next generation of guys and gals coming up. What do they do to to stay in the game for the long haul? And what are some rituals and philosophies that they have? And mm-hmm. if nothing else, just kind of just kind of shoot some jokes back and forth. So, Sounds Brad, good. once again, thank you so incredibly much for being on the show and taking some time to hang out with us today. My thank pleasure. You, Brad. Thanks, guys. I really do appreciate it. It was a fun time. Same here. So, Sam, you have anything else for the people in podcast land? Um, I think whatever you're having, you should have a good one. (laughs) Morning, (laughs) afternoon, or evening, whatever y'all are having, have a darn good one. Roll the music, Sam. Cueing. (laughs) 